Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's episode, I'm sitting down once again with New York Law School professor Art Leonard to discuss three important LGBT legal developments ripped from the pages of Legal's LGBT Law Notes. LGBT Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. On today's episode, we'll start by taking a close look at the early actions of the Biden administration, specifically three executive orders, including the directive rescinding Trump's hateful transgender military ban. Next, we'll travel out west to take a look at a series of rulings from the Colorado Supreme Court revising the state's rules on common law marriage to reflect social change and marriages of same-sex couples. Finally, we have a federal court ruling out of North Dakota which enjoined government agencies from enforcing non-discrimination provisions against entities affiliated with the Catholic Church requiring them to cover gender transition procedures. But before we do, next week is Legal's annual gala. Last year, we packed Cipriani Wall Street, celebrating with over 700 LGBT lawyers, judges, and students. This year, of course, we're celebrating virtually. I wanted to take this opportunity to thank you all for listening to this podcast. I want to thank you for reading LGBT Law Notes every month, for volunteering at our free weekly legal clinic, taking on pro bono LGBT matters, volunteering to mentor a law student, or any of the other ways that you participate in and engage with this organization. The LGBT Bar of New York has been around for 43 years. This group was meeting at a time when lawyers could be disbarred for identifying openly as LGBT. The legal clinic that we run with the help of our legal director and our volunteer network of lawyers has been running weekly out of the LGBT Center since the height of the HIV AIDS crisis. Our attorneys were there writing bedside wills for family and friends at that time. Our work to protect the rights of LGBT people continues to this day. Thank you for being part of that work. I also want to encourage you to join or renew your membership today. Please donate what you can to the Legal Foundation so that we can continue to provide free legal services, student programming, judicial diversity and education work, and even record this podcast. We can't do it without you. Click the link in the description to this podcast or visit www.lgbtbarny.org slash donate. Thank you for being a friend. Now let's dig in. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. It's it's interesting that we're in a different world now. Uh, when we recorded the last podcast, Donald Trump was president. And now we're recording the first episode together of the Biden administration. How does it feel, Art? Uh, it feels like we're very busy, uh, busy changing everything. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, I told one of my contributing writers after he submitted his article for the February issue, I said, well, now it's mainly of historic interest because I think President uh, Biden is going to be reversing this. <laughs> but it's good It's good that we're covering it because it's, it was an important case to cover. Right. Well, then let's just get right into it. I mean, the first things that we're going to cover all have to do with the Biden administration 
uh, and the executive orders, the series of executive orders that they released right out of the gate. The first is the executive order on preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. The second is the executive order advancing racial equity and uh, supporting underserved communities through the federal government. And then, of course, the final one is the transgender military ban reversal um, Art, can you talk about each one of these in sequence with a particular focus on the transgender military ban? Okay, well, uh, first thing to emphasize, and, and this is uh, put forth in the headline that I wrote for this story, Biden administration declares pro-LGBTQ plus policies from day one, moves quickly to repeal transgender military service ban although that wasn't on day one. So uh, at noon on January 20th, uh, Joe Biden was inaugurated as president, 46th president of the United States. Uh, he went to uh, some virtual celebrations and eventually got to the White House later that afternoon and sat down in the Oval Office and was presented by his staff with a stack of folders, each containing an executive order or memorandum for him to sign obviously prepared over the past few weeks uh, in anticipation of this event. And among these first executive orders to be signed by President Biden were two of particular concern to us. The first is titled Executive Order on Preventing and Combating Discrimination on the Basis of Gender Identity or Sexual Orientation. And he basically said, the Supreme Court has declared that discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity is discrimination because of sex. And I want, in my administration, I want every agency that administers a law that forbids discrimination because of sex to follow this ruling in Bostock versus Clayton County. Uh, and uh, he, he lays out his basic policy. And this is setting the tone from the top administration. Every person should be treated with respect and dignity and should be able to live without fear, no matter who they are or whom they love. Children should be able to learn without worrying about whether they will be denied access to the restroom, the locker room, or school sports. Adults should be able to earn a living and pursue a vocation, knowing they will not be fired, demoted, or mistreated because of whom they go home to or because how they dress does not conform to sex-based stereotypes. People should be able to access health care and secure a roof over their heads without being able, subjected to sex discrimination. All persons should receive equal treatment under the law, no matter their gender identity or sexual orientation. Wow, I have goosebumps just listening to that. It is such a change to have a federal administration that isn't attacking our community, but embracing it. Then he refers specifically to the Bostock holding. And he says, under Bostock's reasoning, laws that prohibit sex discrimination prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation, so long as the laws do not contain sufficient indications to the contrary. And he specifically referenced three examples, the Fair Housing Act, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, and the Immigration and Nationality Act. And uh, for those seeking a full list of the laws that are potentially affected, I refer you to the Bostock decision, the appendix to Justice Alito's dissent in which he lists 
100 provisions of federal law that involve a sex discrimination ban of some sort. So he and his clerks have done our work for us, assuming they didn't overlook anything. Uh, and I think it's worth noting Biden's order is assuming the correct answer to some very hotly debated issues. Uh, for example, whether transgender girls and women can uh, participate and compete as women in sports. And as you know, and I'm sure many of our, our listeners are aware, there are bills pending in several legislatures around the country to forbid transgender women from competing in sports. Yes, it was 17 legislatures when last I heard. Yeah, so it's, it's, like, it's like a conspiracy, you know, and, and uh, they've made this their keystone issue. In fact, uh, there's, there's an indication uh, as we're recording this, we're expecting that during the last week of February, there'll be a vote in the House of Representatives on the Equality Act. So that's the first of the orders. The uh, second of the orders, which is, I think, particularly significant uh, on two grounds. For one thing, he says that underserved communities, every agency that runs programs that provide benefits and services to the public should examine whether there are underserved communities that are entitled to these benefits and are not getting them and figure out how to give them equity, give them an equal share to what they're entitled to. And in defining what are underserved communities, he included the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, so he has a mandate out to his agencies to see whether if LGBTQ people are entitled to particular benefits or to participate in particular programs uh, that are funded by the federal government, etc., they should figure out how to make sure that uh, people are getting equity treatment under those programs. And as part of this executive order, he revoked President Trump's executive order 13950, which is the notorious diversity training executive order, uh, in which uh, Trump ordered that federal agencies and federal contractors may not provide diversity training that uh, talks about systemic racism and homophobia and all these various things. And in fact, there were news reports shortly after that EO was put out of LGBT organizations that had contracts with government agencies to provide diversity training and were called up and were told we're canceling, <laughs> you know? So, and, and uh, there was a lawsuit uh, brought against it. And one of the lead plaintiffs was a gay community center whose contract for diversity training was canceled. So this revocation of that executive order is significant. And he directs all agencies to go back and look at any actions they took in response to that order and countermand them, basically. So people are going to get their diversity training, whether they want it or not. So those two were on January 20th, the first day of the Biden administration. Then early the following week, on January 25th, he issued his uh, executive order uh, titled Executive Order on Enabling All Qualified Americans to Serve Their Country in Uniform. So you got to read the order to know that it's about the transgender ban. But he basically says he's revoking uh, President Trump's directive to the Defense Department to adopt the Mattis policy that was proposed to him as implementation of his transgender ban. Uh, and so uh, Biden is taking the position that anyone who was forced out under the transgender ban is entitled to come back as long as they are physically and mentally qualified to serve. Uh, that anyone who suffered any adverse action that should be re-examined 
and of course, the ban on enlistment by transgender people will be lifted. So when will this executive order go into effect? It'll take some time to implement uh, all of this uh, because there are a lot of individual cases to look at. Uh, in, in terms of the recruitment, uh, you may remember that when then Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter lifted the ban at the end of June 2016, he delayed implementing uh, enlistment because he said there are still things that have to be done uh, with regulations and figuring out the criteria for enlisting someone who identifies as transgender. And so that hadn't gone into effect when the Trump administration began. Uh, he had actually put it off for a year. Uh, and then Secretary Mattis put it off till the end of 2017. And then, of course, Trump announced his ban in July of 2017. And so there was going to be no enlistments. So whatever procedures were going to be put into place were not really put into place. Uh, so they're going to have to uh, come up with the procedures. So uh, this may take a little time to implement, but he does suggest to them that they should be moving fast. He wants a progress report from the Defense Department within 60 days. So uh, sometime in March, they have to report back to him. Uh, he also, uh, going one step further, beyond the general non-discrimination EO, he issued a memorandum on January 26th titled Memorandum on Redressing Our Nation's and Federal Government's History of Discriminatory Housing Practices and Policies, which references the LGBTQ community among the communities affected by housing discrimination and uh, tells uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development to review the various Trump executive orders that had undermined prior policies for addressing housing discrimination. For our purposes, most notorious among them, the, uh, the order that transgender women are not going to be sheltered in uh, battered women's shelters. They're not going to be offered shelter. I mean, these policies all have to be reviewed and reconsidered. In addition, of course, uh, the change of administration means lots of new appointments. And uh, it's important to note the uh, first uh, out gay person to head a federal department. Uh, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg of Southland, Indiana is now our Secretary of Transportation and will play a big role in the administration's climate change uh, strategy uh, because obviously fossil fueling uh, burning vehicles <laughs> are a big cause and uh, you know the Trump administration cut back on the uh, mileage requirements and the pollu anti-pollution requirements and things. So uh, he's going to be pretty busy with that. Uh, the Just the other day, it was confirmed, the earlier announcement that uh, Dr. Rachel Levine, who is the director of the Public Health Department in the state of Pennsylvania, is uh, now been appointed or nominated to be Assistant Secretary of Health. She'll be the first out transgender person to, be, to have a sub-cabinet position. And there are several other uh, major uh, appointments. The one that, that jumps out at me is Suzanne Goldberg, uh, who started out her legal career as a staff attorney at Lambda Legal, and who has recently been serving as the provost of Columbia University, where she's a professor at the law school. She is to be the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Education for Strategic Operations and Outreach and for the Office of Civil Rights. Well, that was certainly a mouthful. So much exciting news happening, so many advancements great executive orders, memos, appointments, 
judicial nominations to come. And of course, there's Merrick Garland and all the other secretaries uh, that are going to be uh, really important to enforcing any uh, policies of the Biden administration. So that's just fantastic. Let's go on to the second segment because we have a lot to talk about. We'll take a short break and we'll be back. All right, so the second segment today focuses on a series of rulings from the Colorado Supreme Court, which updates state law relating to common law marriages in order to reflect many changes that have occurred both societally and uh, with the recognition of marriage equality. For those who don't listen to this podcast, you may think that Obergefell settled the issue of marriage equality and access to all of the rights and benefits that go with uh, marriage, but uh, to loyal listeners, you will all know that there are a host of federal and state laws and regulations that continue to be challenged, and some states, of course, have, um, you know, state rules like um common law marriage, uh, which need to be updated, and in this case, hadn't been since the 80s, I think. So what's so interesting about these cases, Art, other than the fact that it deals with LGBT equality and was authored by a lesbian justice? Well, well, you stole my thunder. Uh, (laughs) When I uh, saw it was uh, Monica Marquez, I got excited. Yeah, Yeah. well, the, the point is, and this this a ferocious debate between some of the judges here. Uh, the the decisions were close to unanimous, uh, and two out of the three involved same sex couples. So uh, all three decisions were issued on January 11th: Hogsett versus Neal, Lafleur versus Pfeiffer, and Estate of Yudkin. Hogsett v. Neal is a lesbian divorce case. Lafleur versus Pfeiffer is a gay male divorce case, and Estate of Yudkin is a context, uh, a contest between an ex-wife and an ex-girlfriend, maybe common-law wife, uh, or surviving wife of Mr. Yudkin. And uh, so they're disputing about who gets to be the administrator of his intestate estate. Should it be the ex-wife or should it be the alleged common-law wife? Uh, but the point about all three cases is the court used these cases as the occasion to address some major issues about common law marriage in Colorado. Now, common law marriage is still a doctrine of common law in nine states and the District of Columbia, so it's not insignificant. Uh, most states have abolished it either through judicial decision or through statutes. Uh, many states took the position that now that the state has passed a marriage licensing law, there's no need for common law marriage. Uh, other states have said, well, you know, there are still people who uh, don't go through the formalities but live as husband and wife, and we want to accommodate them. So those are the common law states. The last time the Colorado Supreme Court addressed the issue in any detail was in 1987, in the case of People versus Lucero. And the issue there was spousal testimonial privilege. And this was a couple that was not formally married. Uh, one member wanted to invoke the privilege to not have to testify about conversations with uh, the other person and claim that they were in a common law marriage. And so the court took the occasion to review uh, basically the rules. And in Lucero, this is the starting point, they, they held that a couple could establish a common law marriage by the mutual consent or agreement of the parties to be husband and wife, followed by a mutual and open assumption of a marital relationship. 
and they said that evidence of such agreement and conduct could be found in a couple's cohabitation, reputation in the community as husband and wife, maintenance of joint banking and credit accounts, purchase and joint ownership of property, filing of joint tax returns, and use of the man's surname by the woman or by children born to the parties. So this is, uh, and uh, Justice Marquez refers to it as heteronormative. Look at these factors, uh, husband and wife taking the surname, you know. Uh, so in this case, in this case, the trial courts in all three cases had expressed some concerns that the factors spelled out in the Lucero decision didn't really accurately reflect modern day life. That a lot of things have happened since 1987, not least of them same-sex marriage, but also the number of uh, different sex couples who cohabit and have children without getting married, without getting formally married, either through a religious ceremony or through a civil ceremony, uh, has exploded. Uh, if you look at census data over the period, the proportion of the adult population living in a traditional man-woman uh, formal marriage, which was licensed and performed by an authorized officiant, whether a clergy or a judge or a clerk or something like that, the proportion of that population has shrunk. So the court said, uh, we've got to provide some guidance to these lower courts. Uh, and in the case of the lesbian couple, uh, Edie Hogsett and Marcia Neal, they were in a long-term relationship beginning in November 2001. They never formally married. Same-sex marriage became available in Colorado through judicial ruling in October 2014, when the Supreme Court denied cert on a petition from the Tenth Circuit. Right, so then we had uh, finality, uh, same-sex marriage available in Colorado, but they didn't get married then. It seems that their relationship was on the downward trend at that point, and they jointly filed a pro se petition for dissolution of a claimed common law marriage in January 2015. Uh, the parties mediated a separation agreement stating that they had entered a common law marriage on December 1, 2002, and that their marriage was irretrievably broken. But at a status conference, the trial judge said, well, I can't, under the laws governing dissolution of marriage, I can't dissolve a marriage unless I find there is a marriage. So it's, I mean, you can claim that you had a common law marriage in 2002, but I have to determine whether you did. Uh, so if you want to go ahead with this case, we're going to have to have a trial on the issue of whether you had a common law marriage. The parties decided rather than to go through that process, they would stipulate to dismissal as they had fully settled all issues. But it turns out they hadn't fully settled all issues. And uh, Hogsett sought certain retirement assets and maintenance that she believed Neil owed to her under their agreement, to which Neil responded, we didn't have a marriage. So now one party is denying whether there was a, a, a marriage. Hogsett then filed a new petition for dissolution and Neil moved to dismiss on the grounds that there was no common law marriage and the trial judge agreed with Neil that there was no common law marriage. Applying the Lucero factors, she found almost none of them had been satisfied. And furthermore, there was even controversy about whether the parties ever agreed that they were married. Uh, they did exchange rings, but it was at a gay bar. It wasn't in a formal ceremony. It was just informally they exchanged rings. Uh, Hogsett claimed 
that it was a marriage. Neil claimed it wasn't and she never intended it to be. And of course it couldn't have been because Colorado didn't have same-sex marriage back in 2002. Uh, these parties agreed. They weren't litigating on the basis that Obergefell doesn't apply retroactively. They agreed that it does, but that under the existing factors, there was no marriage. Uh, so on that basis, the, uh, the trial judge said no, went uh, up to the uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, the uh, Court of Appeals did not reject the trial court's holding that it was possible for a same-sex couple to have contracted a common law marriage back in 2002. But they accepted the finding that the mutuality required to find such a relationship was lacking in this record. A dissenting judge said common law marriage is an anachronism. We should get rid of it. It's an artifact of common law rulemaking. We don't need it anymore. Uh, I hope if this case goes up to the Supreme Court that they decide to end common law marriage in Colorado. That would be prospectively only. Obviously, all the people who had common law marriages in existence at the date of that decision wouldn't be unmarried by the decision. Uh, so uh, the case goes up to the Supreme Court. The other same-sex couple, Dean LaFleur and Timothy Pfeiffer had a formal ceremony in 2003, just shortly after the Massachusetts Supreme Court decision in the Goodrich case. They recited vows, a clergyman officiated. There was an exchange of rings in the presence of family and friends, invited guests. And Pfeiffer alleged that he had proposed marriage to LaFleur and LaFleur had accepted. And then they went and they uh, put the ceremony together. Uh, now, Justice Marquez found this significant. She said uh, that this took place after Goodrich means that as a same-sex couple, they could have reasonably believed that at some point their marriage might be recognized, that it was possible, that now it was same-sex marriage was possible in the United States. Uh, and uh, they had an actual ceremony. What about those uh, Lucero factors? Well, the trial judge said, I don't really have to get to the Lucero factors because we have an actual marriage ceremony. We have credible testimony that one proposed marriage to the other who accepted and they had a ceremony and the clergyman presided, they exchanged rings and said they had a marriage. Uh, now, Mr. Lafleur had taken the position that there wasn't a comparable marriage and he had taken the position that Obergefell couldn't be applied retroactively for this purpose. Uh, but the trial judge had disagreed with him and the Court of Appeals agreed with the, uh, with the trial judge. Uh, and the issue that uh, the, the case actually didn't go to the Court of Appeals, it went directly to the Supreme Court because the uh, petition for cert at Hogsett had been granted already. So this case came along and they agreed to consolidate it and to hear it together with the Yudkin case. Uh, and so now the court comes to its new test. It says, the gender differentiated terms and heteronormative assumptions of the Lucero test render it ill-suited for same-sex couples. More broadly, many of the traditional indicia of marriage identified in Lucero are no longer exclusive to marital relationships. At the same time, genuine marital relationships no longer necessarily bear Lucero's traditional markers. The lower court decisions in these cases reflect the challenges of applying Lucero to these changed circumstances. So in this case, they're refining the test. Well, my goodness, that is uh, quite a procedural history and a lot of facts. What is the holding art? A common law marriage may be established 
by the mutual consent or agreement of the couple to enter the legal and social institution of marriage, followed by conduct manifesting that mutual agreement. The core inquiry is whether the parties intended to enter a marital relationship. That is to share a life together as spouses in a committed, intimate relationship of mutual support and obligation. In assessing whether a common law marriage has been established, courts should accord weight to evidence reflecting a couple's express agreement to marry. In the absence of such evidence, where there is no express agreement, the party's agreement to enter a marital relationship can be inferred from their conduct. When examining the party's conduct, the factors identified in Lucero can still be relevant to the inquiry, but they must be assessed in context. The inferences to be drawn from the party's conduct may vary depending on the circumstances. Finally, the manifestation of the party's agreement to marry need not take a particular form. Okay, this drove the Chief Justice bonkers. <laughs> the Chief Justice wrote a concurring opinion. He concurs in the results in the case, but it drove him bonkers. He said, uh, you don't really need to do all this because what the, what the court eventually concluded on the merits in the case of Hogsett versus Neal was that the, the trial judge was correct. This was not a common law marriage. They said that there is just not enough evidence that there was a mutual agreement as of 2002 or going forward to present themselves to the community as husband and wife, to live as husband and wife, et cetera, et cetera. We don't find a mutual uh, statement and uh, even applying our new uh, sort of more permissive test we don't find that this one qualifies. And so the ultimate judgment in the case was to affirm the lower courts and say that there was no common law marriage here. And so in the other case of Lafleur, Lafleur and Pife, uh, the court said, yes, there was a common law marriage and we don't even have to get to the factors because we have expressed evidence of it. We have credible testimony that Pife proposed marriage to Lafleur. Lafleur said yes. They set up a ceremony. They had clergy. They had invited guests. They exchanged rings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's all we need. We have a mutual statement of agreement. So it could be that the legislature will take the clue and will abolish common law marriage in Colorado, which would put them in the majority of states. But until they do, it's important to note that same-sex couples who've been together for a long time may be able to establish that they have a common law marriage if it becomes important to them to do so. Because uh, a key part of the holding in uh, the Lafleur case was that Obergefell can be applied retroactively. In that case, Mr. Lafleur was denying that they believed that it was a marriage, et cetera, et cetera. The court found Pife to be more credible. Uh, but uh, the court, uh, that was the main focus of the Lafleur case in addition to analyzing the facts was to say, yes, Obergefell was declaring a right under the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was adopted in the 1860s. <laughs> Therefore, the right existed, even though it hadn't been recognized yet. So Obergefell obviously is retroactive in that sense. And anyone who meets the qualifications of having a same-sex common law marriage as of that date, fine. Well, Art, I think we can agree that some things definitely change, but when it comes to the dissolution of a marriage. Uh, Same-sex couples, like straight couples, uh, fight and they argue over assets. And uh, there's always going to be fighting and jockeying to see 
uh, how they can twist the law to make sure that they don't have to pay more. Uh, and uh, that's a tale as old as time. All right, so let's go on to our third and final issue after we take a break. All right, we're back. Finally, on the last day of the Trump administration, we have a Trump judge in the Northern District of North Dakota granting permanent injunctive relief pursuant to RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to a group of organizations that were affiliated with the Catholic Church. The injunction precluded the federal government from enforcing the ACA's non-discrimination requirement against religious objectors refusing to provide transition-related health care to trans individuals. Art, tell us about this ruling and what, if any, impact the Biden executive orders might have here. Okay, this is this is interesting. I just have to make one little correction. It's not the Northern District of North Dakota. North Dakota has such a small population, there's only one district <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, it's such a small district. There's so little judicial business. It's such a small district that Judge Peter Welty, who wrote this opinion, yeah. immediately upon being confirmed by the Senate, he became the chief judge of the district because he was replacing the retiring chief judge. <laughs> I think there's one other judge in the district. But uh, so uh, the issue here is uh, a bunch of Catholic affiliated entities. Uh, some of them healthcare organizations, some uh, just Catholic entities that are employers, they brought an action uh, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act seeking a declaration by the court that they were not required under the Affordable Care Act to cover gender transition uh, for their employees or to uh, provide it uh, in their facilities, if they're, you know, healthcare facilities. And they also sought a declaration under Title VII uh, because employee benefits are also uh, their terms and conditions of employment under Title VII. So they wanted a declaration from the court that neither under the Affordable Care Act nor under the Title VII do they have any obligation to provide transitional care or to finance transitional care through their health insurance programs. And the state of North Dakota joined in seeking a similar declaration, but the court found that they didn't have standing to assert. I mean, the state of North Dakota doesn't have a religion, I don't think. Uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act only applies to those religions. Uh, you, may, you may recall the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was passed by Congress uh, in reaction to the Supreme Court's decision in Employment Division versus Smith. The, the name of the case is Religious Sisters of Mercy versus Azar. Now, here's part of the problem. Obviously, the case is brought against the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the federal government, and under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, if a government action would impose a, a burden, a significant burden on the free exercise of religion of the defendant, uh, it can only be uh, enforced if it is supported by a compelling reason and that it is the least intrusive way for the government to achieve that reason. And the burden is on the government to show it has a compelling reason and uh, to show that the uh, policy it's trying to enforce is the least intrusive way to achieve that. All right, we're looking to the Trump administration now to prove that they have a compelling justification to require Catholic hospitals 
perform sex change operations? No, that's not going to happen. And, and the judge said, well, the defendants have not come up with the, the evidence to persuade me that the requirements of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act have been met here. And he says, furthermore, furthermore, why do you have to have your gender transition in a Catholic institution? Go to a non-Catholic institution. You know, and, and if the compelling justification, the compelling reason is to avoid discrimination in healthcare, but you can avoid discrimination by going to one of, he says, you know, the, uh, the numerous, uh, uh, the growing number of healthcare providers who offer and specializes in those services. And I, I wrote on my copy here as I was preparing, question mark, in North Dakota, are there a growing number of healthcare providers in North Dakota that provide gender transition service? I don't know. Maybe I'm stereotyping North Dakota. It's a tiny place. They only have one federal district. I think they have a smaller population than the District of Columbia. Well, and not to mention that it's just totally outrageous to say, you know what, why don't you just go somewhere else? Uh, you face discrimination there. Uh, go find somebody else. It's your problem. But, uh, and, and he issued an injunction, a permanent injunction. But it only applies to the plaintiffs. He did not issue a nationwide because uh, it's an article of faith among Trump appointed judges that federal district judges don't have jurisdiction to issue nationwide injunctions. Now, at least we're benefiting from that in this case. But uh, the, uh, the Biden administration uh, is probably gonna take a different view of things. And we already have uh, some court opinions which we uh, reported on previously, it took place last year, uh, finding that the uh, Trump administration's uh, regulations issued by Health and Human Services under the Affordable Care Act anti-discrimination provision uh, were invalidly promulgated under the Administrative Procedure Act because they were published a few days after the Bostock decision. It took no account of it. And the Bostock decision, of course, said that if you're discriminating based on gender identity, you're discriminating based on sex. And if you apply that to Title IX, which is the uh, incorporated by reference anti-discrimination provision on sex in the Affordable Care Act, you come out with you can't discriminate against transgender people in healthcare. Uh, so we'll see that I think this is gonna go further. Uh, I, I think that the new crowd in charge of health and human services is gonna ask the Justice Department to appeal this to the Court of Appeals and we'll see what happens. Uh, this uh, decision uh, just came out, as I said, the day before the inauguration. So it's uh, less than a month old. They have time to appeal. Uh, the, the question is, there's so much stuff to appeal and clean up that one hopes that uh, they're alert to this. Well, that is certainly very interesting, and we will keep you posted as this case proceeds. Art, do you have an of note for me today? What you got? I of note. Uh, this is one of our favorite senior federal district judges. His name is Myron H. Thompson. He's a senior district judge in the middle district of Alabama. Judge Thompson, who I believe was appointed by uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, he's a senior, he's a senior. He's, he's probably one of the first African-American federal district judges in Alabama. He is fantastic. I mean, the folks down here, uh, prisoners' rights, HIV, he, he did a, a marvelous opinion years ago on HIV in the Alabama prison system. Well, he issued a ruling on January 15, striking down a, uh, a policy order 
by the uh, motor vehicle department in Alabama, actually the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency, requiring proof of gender confirming surgery to accurately reflect the transgender applicant's gender on their ID and their driver's license. He said that's unconstitutional to require that they have proof of gender confirming surgery. He says, and uh, you could see he got some great briefs here uh, to, to help him out. He said, think of the poor transgender person who has not had transgender affirming surgery, gender affirming surgery, but who is presenting consistent with their gender identity. They're driving along in their car, presenting as a woman, and they're stopped and asked for the driver's license. And it has a picture of a man on it. Imagine them trying to get on an airplane. Imagine all the ways that uh, they are inconvenienced by not having identity, state-issued identification, that is consistent with how they're living their lives. And this is outing them every time they have to present their ID. It's outing them. And sometimes when gender, when transgender people are outed, the results aren't pretty. Not just discrimination. It's assault. It's murder. We've got an epidemic of murders. I mean, he says, this, is, this has got to be unconstitutional. I hold it unconstitutional. Now, he also points out that he's, a, he's within the 11th Circuit there, and the 11th Circuit has ruled that discrimination based on gender identity gets heightened scrutiny. So, you know, the state has to have a fairly strong reason for doing this. I don't see any strong reason for them doing this. The state said, we want accuracy. Well, is it accurate to have someone who uh, identifies as a woman, dresses as a woman, grooms as a woman, has official ID that shows a picture of a man? Is that accurate? No. Wow. So I, I love Judge Thompson. He's he's great. He's, he should be in the LGBT Rights Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thanks for bringing him up. That's an exciting case, and it's good to remember the few uh, remaining Carter uh, judges that we have, even if they are on senior status. Um, exciting. I, he's he's carrying a pretty full calendar. So <laughs> amazing. Well, we've got to counter those Trump judges some way. Right. Well, Art, thank you so much for being with us today. That was a full range of, of topics that we covered. Um, we will see you again very soon. Are you coming to our virtual gala? I will be there with, uh, with bells on. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, Art, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT Podcast can be found at iTunes and at legal.podbean.com. Leave us five stars, leave us a review. It's how people find out about us. We'll be back again very soon. The next episode, we'll be talking about criminal legal issues affecting the LGBT community. Back soon.